chapter 8, beginning in verse 36. Mark chapter 8. Our family is very grateful for hospitals. We've spent much time in them. And we're grateful for medical professionals because we've spent much time with them. Hospitals and medical professionals keep me and two of my kids alive. And our massive health care complexes are a testimony to mankind's concern and compassion for the body. But no matter what they do or how skilled they are, the body comes to an end, but the soul housed inside the body lives forever. Now, we're in the second of this series entitled Caring for Your Soul. And we've said there are six truths that we want to embed in our hearts and our minds. So here they are. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God. It is your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. And last week, we talked about the origin of the soul. God gave you a soul, and your soul allows you to relate to God. But we have spiritual amnesia, so we need reminders of who God is and what he has done. And therefore, we gather this morning for worship. We enjoy the fellowship of the saints. There's God's word. There's so many things that God gives us to remember who he is. And then we talked about how our soul can become troubled. Life has a way of doing that. So God tells us to roll our troubles, our burdens onto him, absolutely confident of his gentle and never-ending love for you, which all of us logically leads to this morning's topic, and that is the value of your soul. So look at the Holy Spirit words inspired before us. Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus asked two rhetorical questions. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus asked at least 135 questions in the Gospels, and they're amazing. They're penetrating. They're thought-provoking. He said, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? He said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Or who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? He asked two blind beggars, what do you want me to do for you? The answer seemed obvious, but it wasn't. He said, will God not bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? He said, do you understand what I have done for you? Where is your faith? Who do you say that I am? Why are you so afraid? All of Jesus' questions are very important Yet the two before us in Mark chapter 8 are among the most vital because, number one, they speak to the value of your soul. The value of your soul. If we change verse 37 from interrogative form to declarative, it would sound like this. There is nothing you can give in exchange for your soul. That means your soul is of the greatest value. So what creates value? Well, number one, a designer. Skilled designers create value. Elon Musk's Teslas are more valuable than 1975 AMC Gremlins, which for you youngsters really was a car. It had four wheels, and that's about it. 
When I was a young teenager, the hockey team I root for filled a gremlin with pucks, and you could enter a drawing to win the gremlin, and the joke was that the pucks were worth more than the gremlin. Designers create value. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our image. You have the divine imprint. Never forget that. Nothing man can ever create will exceed the value of your soul. So designers create value, but something else that creates value is durability. Several years ago, we wanted to buy a good vacuum, so we, we, you know, you get on the internet and you see reviews, and we bought a Dyson. I hope no one here works for Dyson. We, we bought it because of its reputation for durability. Well, it broke down, and I found a YouTube video on how to fix it. Turns out a hand grenade couldn't take that thing apart, and evolution couldn't put it back together. It turned out to be only good for the landfill. Conversely, our soul, your soul, will never go out of existence. The sun can become a cinder. The stars can fall from their sockets. As the song says, time will surrender and earth will be no more, but your soul will still exist. So value is created by a designer, by durability. Designer also or excuse me, value also exists because of rarity. A rare Honus Wagner baseball card sold for a few years ago for $3.1 million. Your soul is worth infinitely more than that. Now, there are 7 billion souls on earth today. Someone stopped me after church the other day and said, no, it's 8 billion now. So give or take a few. But God only makes originals, never duplicates. Listen, don't drag the image of God through the mud by seeing yourself as someone who has no real significance, no real importance. You feel like if you just passed off the scene, no one would even notice. God created you. And he created you to be you and only you. And because there is only one of you in the history of the world, you have potential and purpose that no one else has. The Puritan John Bunyan wrote a little book called The Greatness of the Soul. I told someone here Thursday that the Puritans can be a hard read if they're not anglicized because all their S's look like F's. And in this case, it wasn't, so I didn't get the whole book read. I tried to skim it in preparation for this sermon, but he said some very interesting things. One side note, he said, the soul is the receptor of God's grace, and he said, what else would do God, uh, excuse me, what else would God do with grace than use it to save the human soul? But second, he noted that God created the human soul to be curious about, and I'm quoting, the arts and sciences and sciences and every excellent thing of this life. So no matter who you are, he created your soul with intelligence and creativity. You can become proficient at things. He said the soul is an intelligent power, and it can be made to know and understand depths and heights and lengths and breadths. And that means another thing. As a -a one-of-a-kind person, you can serve God in a way that no one else can. 
And you say, no, I'm doing things the exact I'm doing the exact things other people are doing. You might say, I'm just I'm mopping a floor. I'm wiping noses in the nursery. But you serve him in a way that is only you. And the Holy Spirit works through you to make a difference. Don't ever get the idea that what you do to serve Jesus or your prayers, don't ever get the idea that they're meaningless or unimportant. There is only one of you. God created you that way. Rarity. Your soul is also valuable because of desirability. Now, here's a spiritual paradox, and I think we often miss this. Number one, you and I are sinful. The Bible word for that is depraved. Now, we don't like that word. I can handle being called a sinner because that sounds kind of sterile, but depraved? I mean, that's serial killer material, not me. But depraved carries an extremely negative connotation, but it's an accurate reflection of the darkness of sin that lurks inside our soul. We are so depraved that apart from God's grace, we don't even have the awareness of our soul's need to seek God. The Bible says there is none who is righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. I'm going to ask every one of you to do something for just a moment, and most of you are doing it. Look right up here. Please never... <laughs> Please never let anyone walk out of this church saying, I will go to heaven someday because I'm a good person who does good things. Don't ever say that. Then how are we saved? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. The risen Lord Jesus draws us to God, and by the grace of God, we're born again. It's God's grace through faith. It's not what we do. He makes us new creations in Christ. Why does he do that? In part, because of our desirability. Now, some will object to the word desirability just as much as they object to the word depraved, but hang in there with me. As I said last week, why would God save us? Or I'll put it in personal form. Why would God save me? I'm not going to bring anything to him. He's not lonely. He's not saying, man, I hope Mike hangs out with me today. He doesn't need my fellowship. He doesn't need my advice. I've given it to him before. He doesn't follow it. He's holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. We aren't desirable because of our intellect or our morality or our net worth. We're certainly not desirable because of our inherent goodness because we don't have any. I'll never forget, we hadn't been here too long and we took a Sunday off, but we didn't travel. So we went to a church in the metro area. And I'll never forget hearing the preacher say, <laughs> you and I, are God's trophies above his fireplace. I looked in the pew for a barf bag and I couldn't find one. A trophy? Maybe a seventh place trophy in an over 50 slow pitch softball tournament. So why would I use the word desirable then? And here's why. By virtue of the divine 
imprint of the Trinity that you bear, God desires to redeem your soul and the soul of every person. The Bible says God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires your soul. And that's because of his grace. It's not what's found in us. It's what's found in him. A soul must be desirable because not only is God after our soul, so is the devil. Charles Spurgeon said, do you think that which hell craves for and that which God seeks for is not precious? God so desired to save your soul that he sent his son to die in your place, enduring God's wrath for your sin. Friend, here's the point. While you and I are depraved sinners, don't ever get the idea, no one here, never get the idea that you're beyond Jesus. Or don't get the idea that you think you're unredeemable or God doesn't care about your soul. I've been pastoring long enough to know this. There are people right here this morning, people watching online, who in their heart of hearts, they think they're worthless in God's eyes. They have this conflict going on. Maybe it's in their marriage. Maybe it's, it's a besetting sin. Maybe there's just something in their heart that they know is not right, and they just, maybe they just struggle with life. So they think, you know, I know what they say from the pulpit, and I, I know what the Bible says, but I don't think God really looks at me and values my soul. How could you be worthless if the Bible clearly says God desires to save your soul? That God desires all men to be saved. Don't gloss over that. This is the value of the soul. Get a picture for a moment in your mind's eyes of Jesus' lifeless body on that cruel cross at Calvary. The soldiers and onlookers who've been laughing with extreme cruelty, like feral animals, they're walking away to go kill someone else. There's blood on the cross, blood on the ground. His body is soaked with blood. You heard cries of agony coming from two thieves who were being crucified. And maybe you heard it yourself, or maybe someone told you that Jesus, who's hanging on the cross and barely alive, suddenly breathes up and loudly, no one speaks loudly when they're dying, he loudly says, it is finished, and then he died. And a man named Joseph of Arimathea summoned the courage to go to Pilate and ask for his body. He buried him in a tomb, and in the greatest moment of human history, he came out of that tomb alive. He did that because he desires for every soul to be saved. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Imagine that the president or head of state or CEO of a large company suddenly turned up missing. I mean, he'd be all over the news. And heaven and earth would be moved to find him. No stone would be left unturned. No expense would be considered too great. God went farther than that to redeem your soul. And he did it because of the value of the soul. 
But secondly, there's the temptations of your soul. Look again at uh, verse 36. These are rhetorical questions. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Nothing. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. But let's define terms here. In this verse, what does he mean by world? The meaning of the word world in Scripture depends on the context. Here's one definition I read for this context. It means this present world that carries with it the idea of transience, worthlessness, and evil, both physical and moral. It is the seat of cares, temptations, and irregular desires. And that's a clue on how to understand this verse. I'm going to steal something Adrian Rogers used to say, and I'm going to change it just a little bit. In one, well, I haven't, let, let me put that on hold for a second. In one sense, desires for the things of the world are natural. I mean, everyone wants food, shelter, and clothing. We want friends and family, times of leisure and relaxation. The problem Jesus describes with the word world is this, and this is where I'm going to borrow from Adrian Rogers. It is seeking to fulfill legitimate desires in illegitimate ways or to fulfill legitimate desires in excessive ways. The more we become addicted to the things of the world, the more we seek to multiply the pleasures of the world, the greater the danger is that we lose our soul. So we could define the word world with many, in many ways, but let's break it down just to two main categories this morning. The first one is money. And I'd like you to find 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19. Now, I've been a Christian for 37 years. And I've diligently studied his word, and there are multiplied millions that know more than me, but I've reached this conclusion, money is the most dangerous substance on earth. It's the most dangerous substance on earth because it can cause a person to lose his or her soul. Now, let's be clear. Money is not evil. I, I like money myself. <laughs> okay. It's dangerous, but it's not evil ambition to get money is good it's very good in his famous sermon on giving john wesley put it perfectly this is the magnum opus statement when it comes to money he said gain all that you can there's ambition save all that you can give all that you can that's perfect Money in the hands of a person sold out to Jesus is a conduit of extraordinary blessing, but money makes it very hard to sell out to Jesus. So Scripture warns us strongly. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19. Uh, excuse me, I think I said 19. It's verse 9. It says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, we likely miss the gravity of that verse, and here's why. As American Christians, we still have a hard time flushing out a faulty assumption about salvation. It's like a computer virus running in the background. We say, well, a person prayed to accept Jesus, so now they're saved and they can never be lost. Well, you can't lose your salvation. But we say, well, this person prayed to accept Jesus, so it doesn't matter how they live or what they believe or what they've been doing for the last 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, they're saved. And we say things like, well, they know the truth, they just don't live it. And with that virus running in the background, we think that this verse means this. If they want to get rich, they can really mess their life up, but 
that doesn't have anything to do with their eternal destiny. Look at the word destruction. Here's a definition that Spiros Zodiades, who's a Greek expert, here's what he said that word means. It refers to the state after death wherein exclusion from salvation is a realized fact, wherein man, instead of becoming what he might have been, is lost. John Stott said it means destruction in hell in the next life. Matthew Henry, who's always helpful, said it means men are drowned in destruction and perdition. Perdition, that's how the King James Version translate that, translates that word. Judas is called the son of perdition. The Antichrist is called the son of perdition. Money can cause a person to lose their soul. So part of gaining the world is this legitimate desire for money sought in illegitimate ways or excessive ways. But something else Jesus means by gaining the world is the excessive pursuit of pleasure. If the pursuit of pleasure dominates your thoughts and actions, please realize you're doing damage to your most valuable possession. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I mean, this is a gentle statement he's saying, making. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. That word lust means an irregular or an ordinate desire or appetite. In other words, a desire to fulfill a legitimate need in illegitimate or excessive ways. Waging war against your soul. That phrase, wage war, is a word that means serve as a soldier. So your body and your soul wage a civil war when it comes to the excessive pursuit of pleasure. And one side will win. Joseph Excel was a somewhat obscure commentator, but he had three really good observations on this verse about how fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. He said, number one, they diminish the intellectual faculties of the soul. So discernment begins to wane. Sin is easily justified. We lose our desire for the word because our mind is always on pleasure. And we find we can't even sit in church, read our Bible, or pray without thinking about the world. So fleshly lusts diminish our intellectual faculties. He said they also diminish the moral qualities of the soul. Like a body without physical exercise, fleshly lusts atrophy the soul. And as we live for ourselves and live for ourselves, we become gradually absorbed in our own selfish views and interests. He said as we pamper our appetites, the object we delight in acquire consequence and her estimation. And then he said, thirdly, fleshly lust damaged the eternal interest of the soul. And he said, and I'm quoting, the soul can never quite be what it would have been had the grace of self-restraint been exercised. Now let me read that again. The soul can never quite be what it would have been had the grace of self-restraint been exercised. Now you could argue with that quote. You could say, well, God's grace can restore us and then some, and that's true, but here's why I think he's right. When we give in to fleshly lusts that wage war against our soul, we lose time. We can never get that time back. Paul said we're to redeem the time because the days are evil. We're to work the works of him who sent us because night is coming when no man can work. Now, when a man lives for money and pleasure, 
He can be as happy as he can be for a time. But if you're a Christian, the excessive pursuit of pleasure will not satisfy you. More and more of the world, it will be just like drinking salt water. You want more and more, and your thirst is never satisfied. And it is never satisfied because a redeemed soul was made for Jesus, not for this world. There was once a little boy who would look to the west across the green pasture every morning. And as the sun arose, there was a beautiful house with golden windows. And every morning he thought how wonderful it would be to live there. So one morning he decided that's what he was going to do. And he set out across the pasture to go to this golden house with the shiny golden windows. And when he arrived, he was crushed. It was just an everyday house. Well, a little girl emerged from the house. And the boy said, I came to see the house with the golden windows that I see every morning off into the west. And I always knew I would be so happy if I could just live in that house. But I guess I came to the wrong place. And the girl said, oh, you, you did come to the wrong place. But if you wait here until sunset and look off in the east, I'll show you the house with the golden windows. And I know that if I could just live there, I would be happy. And so late in the afternoon, pointing to the east, she said, there it is. There's the golden house. And she pointed to the house of the little boy on which now the sun was shining. That's what happens when we chase the world. So there's the value of the soul, the temptations of your soul. Number three, the appeal to your soul. Look again at Mark 8. These are strong words from Jesus. Verse 34, take up your cross. Verse 35, lose your life for the sake of the gospel. Verse 39, if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. These are just these are instructions to an everyday Christian. Now, a significant majority of Americans would say their soul is saved. But how is it that their goals and dreams and aspirations and lifestyles and words and thoughts and deeds are no different from the world? And here's why. We have fashioned a God who in our minds is a little bit more powerful than LeBron or Mahomes and Kelsey. But the real God is more awesome and glorious than anything we can imagine. I mean, we're told about God here, but this isn't the full and final revelation of him. When we go to heaven, we'll still never know him fully. Otherwise, we'd be God. We're always going to be fascinated with him. We're going to always want to bow before his holiness. He is to be greatly feared. He alone holds the power of life and death. We fabricate a tamer version of God that we always know how he's going to respond. If we do this, he'll do that. He's untamable, and we need a God who is untamable because it's only a God that powerful who can sustain your soul in the middle of suffering. It's only a mighty God who can sustain your soul and give you the strength to face hardship, to sustain you through persecution, to carry you through fear or grief, to give you wisdom for incredibly difficult situations, and who can punch his way through our stubborn sin and save our soul by pouring out his grace on us. The Jesus 
of the Bible will save your soul. And when he saves your soul, he changes you. You'll wrestle with his truth. And he'll sometimes vex your soul. But he's so mighty that you'll know you're secure in him. So how is a soul saved? Now, only mankind complicates this. I'm going to try to explain it in a different way. How is a soul saved? Number one, this, you have to believe that your soul is going to spend eternity in hell without him. And that's because you're a depraved sinner. And if right now you say, you know, I don't believe that right now. I don't believe that I'm a sinner against God. Then, number one, you can't be saved right now. But number two, let me ask you this. If you don't believe you're going to spend eternity in hell, what do you have to be saved from anyway? So step one, believe in your heart of hearts that you're going to go to hell. And you're going to go to hell because of sin, your sin. Your sin against God, the sin of your soul. Number two, believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. Now you say, well, you know, what do I have to be saved from? Well, I have to be saved from hell. Actually, you have to be saved from God's wrath for your sin. We are all deserving of God's wrath in, in his mercy. Jesus stepped between God's rightful wrath and you. And he said, I'll take that wrath. I'll take that wrath that this man, this woman deserves. Put it on me. It's like you were seated in the electric chair and strapped in and Jesus grabbed you up, jerked you out of that chair, sat down at it himself and said, throw the switch. You believe by faith that he, will, he died on the cross to take God's wrath for your sin in your place. And then number three, you believe that Jesus died and rose again. If you don't believe that he rose from the dead, then what good did his death do? It will be like me standing between you and God and said, I'll take the wrath that you deserve. So God kills me instead of you. But I deserve God's wrath too. That does nothing for you. Jesus did not. Jesus never sinned, not once in word, thought, or deed. He was the only one who did not deserve God's wrath. But he took it and he died. And in a demonstration of his deity, his power over sin and death and hell and anything you face, he bursts forth out of that tomb. He is alive now and forevermore. And when I was lost, and for those of you who are new to West Haven, I got saved when I was 23. One of the things that occurred to me was, if this guy named Jesus of Nazareth said he was going to die, and three days later rise from the grave. And if that actually happened, then it behooves anyone with any sense of rationality and self-preservation to completely center their life on him. If it isn't true, then this is the biggest hoax ever perpetrated in the history of the world. But it's true. He died for the whole world, and that includes you. So by faith, God will give you Jesus' righteousness in his sight. You'll still be a sinner on this earth, but you'll hate your sin. You'll fight to repent of it. But best of all, 
You'll be forgiven of it, and you'll know you're secure in Him. This is God's grace, His mercy, His eternal provision. And all of this is evidence of the value of your soul. Let's pray.